Welcome to Healthonomics, a podcast about health, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Ina Katsikas, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Nevada, Reno, in the economics department. So today, my guest is Dr. Travis Libert. Travis is a professor of agricultural and resource economics at UC Davis. Travis, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm stoked to have you here because today we are talking about your paper titled Digital Breadcrumbs and Dietary Diversity, Testing the Limits of Cell Phone Metadata in Development Economics. And this was co-authored with Oscar Barriga Cabanillas and Joshua Blumenstock and Daniel Putnam. But before we get started, tell me about your background in economics. Sure. I did my undergraduate uh, degree at Utah State University in economics and environmental sciences. That was actually where uh, it was really, I, I came to economics through environmental sciences, actually. Uh, I was very interested in understanding environmental policy and realized early on that it seemed to be the, the, the analysis that moved the needle most in terms of policy design tended to be economic analysis. That tended to be kind of the language that spoke most directly to policymakers. So that's what really drew me into economics as an undergrad. Uh, I then spent a year on a Fulbright fellowship in Morocco, and, and, and that was also uh, motivated by environmental interests, but ended up exposing me to, um, to a host of, of questions and issues in development economics. Um, and so I took, I took those interests with me to Cornell, did a master's degree stayed on uh, to do a PhD. And primarily now, uh, I mean, I consider myself an applied microeconomist, um, but much of my research, not all, but much of my research is related to international development. So with, with work in parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, Middle East, and, and India, as well as a few other places like, like Haiti, where this paper is, is set. That sounds like a wonderful career. I think it's every grad student's dream to travel the world doing really cool economic research, and that's what you're doing, so that's cool to hear. Um, so in this paper that we are talking about today, what is or what are your primary research questions that you are looking at, and what are the highlighted findings before we dive into the details? So the main motivation for this work uh, comes from uh, earlier work that uh, our, my co-author Josh Blumenstock had done in Rwanda and in a few other places. And, and Josh was really on the, on the frontiers of early work that was using uh, cell phone metadata, sometimes called call detail records, to predict uh, wealth levels of, of either of households or of small, small geographic areas. He had made some real breakthroughs, very promising, and 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 all of us who were interested in in poverty, poverty measurement, uh, had had taken note of those those breakthroughs. This work is motivated by kind of pushing the frontiers a little bit beyond static poverty measurement and trying to understand how much or if at all uh, these call detail records could be used to uh, as the basis for targeting the poor in uh, development programs, or even uh, an even higher standard evaluating impact of development interventions. So that becomes kind of the primary motivation, it's like how, how far can we actually push call detail records in, in a development context. And high level, what we find is that there are some very specific 
constraints on how much you can get out of those call detail records. In the kinds of setting that we, uh, this is a collaboration with the World Food Program, and and I think the constraints in that we see and that we reveal in our study, I think are pretty common constraints in a lot of development settings. Those constraints mean that there are real limits to how much we can get out of call detail records, but we also, there's a variety of kind of lessons that we learn along the way. But the other thing that I think comes out pretty clearly is that there's a big difference between using passive data like call detail records to target the poor, to kind of identify and target the poor in some programmatic sense. Uh, that, that seems much more doable and feasible than using those, that as a source of data for evaluating impact. So this is not, you know, we, we sort of point to some with some optimism to how they could be used for targeting much less optimistic about how they could ever be used for impact evaluation. So the data used in this paper comes from these call detail records, and you refer to them as CDRs throughout the paper. And I want to hear more about this. How comprehensive is this data? What does it cover? What kind of things can you observe in the data? I think this is really, really cool data that you were working with. And I, for the audience, um, I want to hear from you. What what does this data cover? What can you see in it? Yeah, so uh, I guess the first most important thing to note is that these are they're considered metadata in the sense that they're uh, they're data that that exist um, kind of at a higher level than than the details of any communication that might be happening by cell phone, right? So what the data don't include are transcripts of conversations or recorded archives of text messages. So so it, that's the sense in which they're metadata. They're data that kind of exist above the, the level of communication. But having said that, you know, that, that's what they don't include. They do include a whole lot, right? So those metadata include things like any sort of active engagement in the network is going to be recorded in some way in the metadata. So that includes the time of day, the duration of a call, the number of texts, the outgoing numbers, so who initiates a, a communication on the network, who the recipient is, how long that was, what time of day, that kind of thing, but also some geographical details because the, the tower location is recorded as well. So, so we can see you know, the, the location that the communication was sent geographically. We can kind of spatially situate the communication. And then we also see passive movement. So Anytime the cell phone is like searching for a signal and it moves from one cell to the next, it's going to be recorded in those CDRs. And then finally, we see quite a bit. These are mostly, almost entirely prepaid accounts. We see everything related to the account management. So what their balance is, when they top up their balance, how much they use, like the increment of, of top-ups. Uh, and then we do see some activity in terms of mobile money, although mobile money in, in, in our study is not really all that important. But we do see transactions that are that are conducted via mobile money. In the paper you referred to this kind of data as passive data. And this is the first time that I've that I've heard this phrase. And so what is passive data and how is this passive data important or helpful in development economics? That's a great question. It's one that when I was doing my PhD probably wouldn't have even come up, right? I mean, in, in the last 20 years or so, 15 years even, maybe even 10 years, 
the value of passive data sources has really exploded, like the potential uses of it and prevalence of passive database analyses in, in development economics, but in other fields as well, in environmental economics and in IO. So the key distinction here is that passive data is data that is not collected purposefully for the purposes of doing research, right? So it's not, it, it is not survey data, right? So in development economics, the big distinction here would be between you know, data that you would go out and collect yourself or a team would collect or the World Bank would collect. It would be, it would be actively collected data. Passive data is sometimes referred to as administrative data. So passive data is data that, that is generated as a kind of a byproduct of normal life. And it really, there's a reason why it's only been in the last 10 or 20 years that it's become a valuable source of data for researchers, which is, you know, it has to do with the, the expansion of the of internet and or information communication technologies and, and being linked and things being recorded and digital devices and all the ways that, you know, our lives are kind of documented and archived without really our intention to document or archive, archive. I mean, that those are pa- those are sources of passive data that, that can become extremely valuable. The, the other source, I mean, another source of passive data that, that's become very, very useful is, is remotely sensed data. So uh, images from satellites in the context of environmental issues, but also in, in development as well. One simple way to think about it, and this has a direct, has sort of direct correlation to what we do in this paper is you know, satellite images that detect the prevalence of nighttime lights. So artificial electric lights at night can be detected from space. And so you can think of that as a measure of wealth or development of an area because it tells you like how much, how much at nighttime activity there is, but observed from space. So it's very much a passive data set. No one, no one is actually responding to a survey saying that I have access to electric lights for three hours in the evening. No one is, is actually responding to questions. It's just passively detected by these sensors on satellites. That's really cool how much information you can pull from just this passive data. That's neat. So in the paper, you are looking at the World Food Program's initiatives in 2016. So what were the goals of this program? Why did the World Food Program target Haiti? And what do these initiatives entail? The World Food Program has has had operations in Haiti for a long, long time, and as have many, many, you know, both kind of development agencies, UN agencies, and NGOs, right? So Haiti is uh, sometimes referred to as, as as like a kingdom of NGOs because they are so much a part of the way Haiti functions, even before the earthquake, you know, a decade ago, but but especially since the World Food Program has always had operations in Haiti and. This particular program came up uh, in the wake of uh, about three years of drought, two or three years that happened in around 2013, 14, 15. And in response, and this is the kind, this is kind of standard World Food Program uh, kind of programmatic activity. They uh, they designed this emergency cash transfer program that was meant to to help families cope with this long kind of multi year drought. Uh, and so what the program did, I mean, so that's why it's in Haiti, because they're, they have operations in Haiti. They have a lot of, you know, they have a lot of capacity in Haiti. Haiti. They have a commitment to Haiti as one of the, as the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. It's natural that they would be focusing on Haiti. They, the way this program, the way they did the targeting in this case was they, they first selected, identified regions in Haiti that were particularly hard hit by the drought. 
and then and then having identified the regions, they mobilized the team to go out and visit communities and start to identify communities and households that were potentially most vulnerable. And then as the third, a third and final tier of targeting, they collected a very short survey, conducted a, a short survey with this kind of short list of households. And then from that short list of households, they identified those that were especially vulnerable. So the final tier was the, the scorecard data that they got. And, the, and then once they identified the households, the program itself consisted of three consecutive months of a what we call an unconditional cash transfer. So it was a cash transfer that the households received designed to be monthly. And it was designed to be about $50 per household per month, which is a significant amount for the, you know, in, in this context for these households. So that's kind of the brief background on the project itself. How do the um, CDRs that you're using in the data, the CDR data, how do those come into play in evaluating a program like the World Food Programs initiatives in 2016? How are you using these CDRs to really evaluate the World Food Programs initiatives? That question actually has some complicated answers to it. If we rewind to that point where the World Food Program was designing this program and, and launching the program and we started to get involved, those early conversations with World Food Program, we kind of had to pitch them on the potential future value of call detail records of TDRs for this kind of programmatic intervention. And so we talked to them about how, given this promising work that, that was coming out at the time, five, six years ago, that it seemed like this was an ideal place to test whether CDRs could be used to enhance targeting of beneficiaries and also to, to evaluate impact. So that was kind of the discussion, and and thankfully they were willing to kind of experiment because we because frankly we no one really knew whether this could be done. The thing that's important I think to clarify is that uh, at this time that the World Food Program is is designing and conducting this program, they were they were very interested in the potential of CDRs, but they weren't actually using CDRs in any way in their own program design or evaluation. This became the opportunity to do something that hadn't been done. What we ended up doing with the World Food Program that was much more conventional and familiar to them and to us was we did a, um, a survey-based evaluation in some of the districts that were treated by this program. So that everyone was familiar with and everyone sort of understood how, that, how you do impact evaluation in more of a kind of a conventional way. But that was that was just to give us a benchmark, right? It was just to give us like this is how this is how things are normally done. It gives us a sense of what what actually happened in the program. But it was a benchmark against which we could kind of evaluate how effective the CDR version would be, right? Uh, so I guess the the short answer to the question is, it was very experimental. So at the time we were doing this, no one, including the World Food Program, was was actively using CDRs in either program design or evaluation this was the opportunity to test whether that was even possible. From the results that you found, how were food insecurity concerns mitigated as a result of these World Food Program cash transfers? What did you find in, in your results? Fortunately, both for, the, for these households and, and for the program and for the research, right? So fortunately, we find very measurable and meaningful improvements in food security as a result of the transfer right now that's fortunate it's nice because it kind of confirms what we would expect 
in a context like this, very poor, very vulnerable, and a fairly significant, you know, in magnitude, a fairly significant cash transfer to these households. We weren't terribly surprised by that. The World Food Program team was not terribly surprised because they're confident that this kind of a program can really help help households make ends meet during tough times. We find big improvements in food security, improvement in dietary diversity, increases in food consumption, decreases in what's called a, a coping severity score, which is uh, which measures like how desperate threat households seem to be based on the severity of the actions they take to cope with uh, hardship. So in, in just about every way that we measured in the conventional survey, we find improvements. So that becomes useful. And in, in one sense for the World Food Program, that was like that, you know, that's good enough in a way. It's like, okay, good. We, we have evidence that the program worked. But for the research side, that was the point where the climbing started getting steep, right? That was like the beginning of the, of the journey, not the end, uh, because then, then that's where all the CDR support begins. Right. First step was to see if the program was even effective. And so you use survey data to answer this question, if the program was effective. What econometric methods do you use to evaluate your results? We use what's called a regression discontinuity design because the program was not, it was not designed as a randomized control trial. So we don't have pure random variation in household recipients. Instead, in that three tiers of targeting that, that the World Food Program uses, we use that third and final targeting level where they do a scorecard survey among all the potential beneficiaries in a, in a given community. And then they, they have a, it's a really simple scorecard, you know, a dozen simple questions. And then they, they add those up and you get a point total. And then, then for each community, they figure out, they draw a line in in the range of potential scores, they draw a line and say, you know, households that have a score above this point, this cutoff, those are, uh, those are going to be the beneficiaries. So those are the ones who qualify the households that qualify for uh, the transfer and those below the line don't. And so anytime in empirical work, anytime you see that kind of a threshold, it presents the, it raises the possibility of using a discontinuity design where you're using this ad hoc and typically sharp discontinuity that divides beneficiaries and non-beneficiaries. You're using that as kind of the basis for identifying a causal impact. And it's based on the underlying assumption is that there's not, that on either side of that cutoff, that these households are similar. And if they're similar, but then there's this somewhat arbitrary cutoff, it means that you can actually kind of narrow your focus around that that threshold and, and get some causal inference around the impact of the program. Right. The whole idea of the discontinuity approach is that people right above the threshold and right below the threshold are economically, you know, you can profile them as somewhat the same, yet the people below the threshold got the treatment and the people above the threshold didn't. So you can evaluate those effects. So once you evaluated, you know, is the program effective? Is this increasing wealth, decreasing food insecurity, yada, yada, yada. Once you finished that step, then you started really messing around with the CDRs and seeing how powerful they could be in indicating a change in overall wealth, for example. So how do you observe or what observable cell phone behaviors would indicate an individual's income bracket, for example? It gets a little bit complicated here because ultimately we rely heavily on machine learning to do that task, which means that there's a little bit of a black box 
flavor to this work. So what this work does not consist of is us as the research team sitting around and trying to kind of pick the top three features of the CDRs that we think would be most impactful and then and then using those three to, you know, in the modeling. And this is really a, as a byproduct of you know, advances in computing power and machine learning techniques in the last 10 or 20 years. When I did my PhD, that's kind of what it would consist of, right? You'd sit around and you'd have, you'd have a laundry list of hundreds of different possible, possible features or, or distinctive ways that individuals are using their phones. And you would just kind of try to intuit what you thought were the most impactful features for what you're trying to pick up. If we had to do that here, there would be no research along these lines, right? No, there would be no big data kind of research if, if there wasn't the machine learning techniques that allow you to sift through simultaneously, you know, thousands of different features and figure out the combination that is most predictive. So instead, what we're doing here is we first want to see, I mean, one way you can think about it is that, like the first thing we want to see is, is if these call detail records, if they're predictive of wealth levels, in the same way that they were found to be predictive of wealth levels in say Rwanda with the earlier work by Josh Blumenstock or and, and in other countries. Country, I mean, this work had been replicated in other places as well. So you can think of it as like first task, did the CDRs in Haiti as predictive content for wealth levels? So that's, you can think of that as task number one maybe. And we do see evidence that it's, they do convey this, like at the population level, there's a, there's a pretty strong correlation, almost a you know, similar degree of correlation with wealth that is found in other countries as well. And then that kind of, again, becomes a little bit like the starting point for how far beyond that established result can we push the CDRs. I think the machine learning aspect of this paper is what really, really drew my attention because I took a machine learning class last semester. The techniques I learned in Python were like, blew my mind. Like if you can do so much more than just like a little, I, now, now I call it like a, a little nothing OLS model. Like there's so many more powerful techniques out there that can deal with nonlinear data that can deal with if you have 2000 variables in your data set, also known as features, you know, how are you going to condense that into the top three features that are the, the most predictive in your, your outcome variable. And that's what's so really attractive about machine learning is that it's incredibly powerful. Um, so what is, I know we have some grad students in my program who are kind of testing around with machine learning, and I'm sure that's the case at many other grad programs. So what is feature engineering? You mentioned it once. So what is feature engineering to a grad student who is just starting off with learning machine learning techniques? Yeah, feature engineering is, and I'll speak of it from the context of this application, the CDRs in this paper. In our context, feature engineering consists of the series of manipulations and modifications of the raw data into kind of ingredients that that are going to be fed into the they're sort of like pre-processing so it's kind of pre-processing pre-processing the raw data into these features which are kind of like ingredients that are going to be fed into the machine learning algorithm in the prediction phase to be a little bit more specific you know, these features in the call records consist of things like it's ways to, to kind of partially aggregate the data right into something that's uh, internally consistent and can be useful and, and where we kind of know what, the, what it might be picking up, 
but the, the point is just to generate, what you're trying to do is generate as many of these features as possible that you can feed into the, to the machine uh, to sift through and figure out how to combine those in the most predictive way. To be specific, some of these might be things like the number of active, active records that are produced by a, a given user's mobile phone in a given day. That's like a, a feature that is how intensively a particular user uses their phone. The number of days in a given week during which the user was active. You could do that by hour. There's so many different ways you could break up the raw data and kind of recombine it or aggregate it into something that feels like a potentially useful feature. Uh, it could be how many times a user picks up, like the percentage of times the, the, the user picks up the phone when a call is incoming, the proportion of the user's calls that are, that are outgoing versus incoming, the number of unique contacts that are made in a given month, then a whole host of them that are related to the, the balance on their prepaid account, what their average balance is in talk time over, over a period of a week or a month. And in all these features, as you can tell, most of these features have a built-in time step dimension. You could define the feature over one week and that would give you one set of features. You could define the same feature over two weeks, that's a different set, over one month is a different set and so forth. So there's a lot of different dimensions because the data is so rich, you have obviously not infinite, but there are a lot of different ways you can think to combine these features. You can think about variation. So then, then you can think about like first moment versus second moment and third moment in, in all these things, right? If you're, if you're measuring it by day, you can get the average over all the days. You can get the variance or standard deviation across the days. Again, it's not quite the sky's the limit, but you have a lot of options for how you recombine and, and reconstitute them into features. In our case, we have the benefit of this other frontier work that's been done using CDRs over the past five, six, eight years. And so now there are defined feature engineering programs that are designed for CDRs. So in our case, we didn't have to go through and, and program up thousands and thousands of features. That's been done. And then there's kind of open source code out there that we can use to build on, and it'll just generate the features. What we end up doing in the end is something like 2,200 feature. I mean, we've done it in different ways. So somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000 features that we can generate, depending on kind of what the temporal time step is. And, and then those are the features that are the raw ingredient or the kind of the primary ingredients that are used in the machine learning algorithm. So to me, this sounds like the sky is the limit, even though you said maybe that's not the case, but your mind really begins to spin with how many different ways you can twist the data up. And to anyone working in data science, this is like the coolest thing ever. Like how much more information can you pull out of the data? And you can do that with machine learning by twisting it all these different ways. And so it's the coolest thing. So in these CDRs, the call detail records, what behaviors do you observe over the course of the time period that you're looking at? Do you find that phone behaviors change? Are there even observable changes? What do you find? Are people like calling more once they get the cash transfers? I'm curious to hear more about these results. We can kind of crack open the black box a little bit in that way. I mean, what I mean by that is if you just rely entirely on what you get as part of the machine learning outcome, what you end up with is a measure of predictive power for a given model, for a given outcome variable. If we wanted to try to predict wealth using these called detail records, what we would have is a goodness of fit kind of measure. Think of it as like how correlated our predicted wealth measure was that's predicted only on the basis of call detail records relative to actual wealth, right? So how good was the fit? 
we can do that. And as I said, at least on wealth for the whole population, we, we see you know, levels of correlation there that are pretty similar to what others have found in other places. When we get to the program, as you said, like the cash transfer, we can actually do more uh, and we need to do more. You know, as we talk through those results, it'll become clear why we need to do more. But you can think about that as to crack open the, that, that black box a little bit and say, can we actually zoom in and see how some of these features change? If we look at a time series before and after that the cash transfer was received, can we see movement in those network activities? The only way you would ever be able to pick up changes in wealth, you know, which is basis for any kind of impact evaluation. The only way you could do that is if the cash transfer was actually triggering a change in behavior on the network, because right? that's all you're using are these call detail records. When we do that, we do see very clear spike on the day of the transfer in a variety of ways, like in terms of network usage. So we see that the beneficiaries, in terms of the total number of contacts that are in their communication, like that, that spikes on the day of the transfer, and then it, and then it converges to kind of a higher level of contact than before the transfer. We see that with the number of outward calls, the number of active days, the number of antennas that they're pinging, right? So kind of a measure of their mobility. All these things increase after the cash transfer is is sent and received. That that gives us some confidence that there's at least that we satisfy kind of the prerequisite for finding an impact, which is a, a change in network activity or network usage in response to the cash transfer. So you do find some change in behavior. Are there any other results that we haven't talked about today with these CDRs that might be really interesting for a grad student to to hear about? I think I hit on all the ones that I was really interested in, but are there other results that I should have pointed out? Let me mention two, and I described these briefly at the outset, but what I've been talking about is replicating these studies that use CDRs to predict wealth. And you think of wealth as a stock variable. When we instead try to predict consumption or a flow variable, our predictive power takes a nosedive, right? Much, much harder to predict consumption. Uh, and food security is a consumption-based kind of measure. Dietary diversity is like a consumption measure as opposed to the value of wealth or assets. That's the next thing that I would highlight. It's much easier to predict wealth than consumption. The other thing that I think is important is to note any of these kinds of predictions, machine learning predictive uh, exercises, like how much variability you actually have in the data becomes very important. And so one of the tensions that we, in this paper that we really explore is this tension between, you know, targeting, which pushes World Food Program to focus on these especially vulnerable households in, in hard hit districts. And that all makes sense from a targeting perspective. If that's this narrow basis of uh, this narrow kind of variability in the data that you're using for predictions, you're never going to be able to do very much because the only way these prediction, these machine learning predictive models work is to have the, the kind of the full range of variability and outcomes, which means that you need not the poorest and most vulnerable districts and households. You need also some of the wealthiest or the non-poor. And then what you're doing is you're using that whole range to predict outcomes. Right. So that would be the second one is that the like how much variability is in the data really matters. And then the third and final one, it's completely conceivable to us that CDRs could be a, a valuable source of targeting data, right? That the right kind of model could be very useful. If World Food Program, for example, wanted to overhaul its targeting approach, CDRs could be very valuable and it could be, they could be cost effective in many ways to help them target more effectively and more efficiently. That's very different than 
impact evaluation. So we're, we're much more pessimistic about how the CDRs could ever be used to evaluate impact, even though we're quite optimistic about how they could be used for targeting. What do you think you would find if you used the same mechanisms, call detail records, same methods, but looked at maybe some counties in the United States, like for targeting food programs? For example, the um, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, is a really popular policy that health economists love to look at. What do you think you would find, like say if SNAP decided to use CDRs to try and target high-need families. Do you think you would find similar results in the U.S. compared to to Haiti if you use the CDRs? I don't think you would. And here's why. And it's an interesting question because it highlights another dimension of limits to this kind of work, but one that we don't really describe in the paper in, in much detail. The main reason is that CDRs, put it this way, the more salient, the marginal cost of network engagement and usage, the more useful the CDRs are going to be in all these ways, right? But they have to be salient on the margin to the user. And in Haiti and in much of the developing world, that's still true because most subscribers have prepaid accounts. And on a prepaid account, the vast, vast majority of prepaid accounts are all being charged on the margin for their network usage. There are occasionally, there are occasionally like some prepaid plans where you can play, you can pay a chunk of money prepaid and then it gives you unlimited over a period of time. So any kind of plan that has unlimited anything would undermine a lot of the information content of CDRs, right? If in this way, right? Because it means that the way people are using their phone, if you're on, if you're on a monthly plan, a subscription plan, or if you have unlimited data, or if you have, you know, unlimited texting or something. So anything like that, it's going to sap the CDRs of much of their statistical content in terms of what is what does it reveal about a person in contrast to Haiti in these in the, in the prepaid models these are all kind of marginally salient transactions which is why they become a valuable predictor that would be the first thing that comes to mind there's actually a few other dimensions there too which is that the way this is one of the things that we're seeing even in Haiti in places like Haiti where people are on prepaid account it's becoming harder actually to do this work well somewhat ironically, because the way people use their phone, even on a prepaid account, more than half of communications of all mobile communications in Haiti now happen by WhatsApp. And WhatsApp uh, is a data transaction and, and you see almost nothing in the, about the transaction in the CDRs. So the CDRs, the, the kind of the, the peak CDRs for like you know, signal and information content is where there's prepaid accounts, and everyone is, is communicating on the network rather than through data apps. Those are things that are kind of fading into the past with, with each passing week or month, which makes it harder and harder to extract signal from the CDRs in, in this kind of way. So I can see in the U.S. where so many people have these unlimited data plans, like myself, for example, that would undermine the predictive power or just the statistical power that the CDRs have. Okay, I see what you're saying. So these cash transfers that the World Food Program did, from what you saw in the results, both from the survey results and your your CDR, or more, more from the survey results, what is the long-term outlook of these cash transfers? Are they effective in mitigating food insecurity in the long run? Were you able to make any observations? I know your survey was like, 
at the time of the transfer, not later on. But I'm curious to hear, is it just like a short-term thing or do you think long run there are some impacts? I think there are long-term benefits to these kinds of emergency cash transfer programs or food assistance programs and in the wake of severe shocks, like a large widespread drought. I think that, and it's, but it's based on evidence beyond this study, right? This study is, is as you say, uh, pretty narrowly focused on short-term, short, short to medium term over the course of, you know, from four to six months after the payment or something. So it's not immediate, immediate, uh, although for some houses it's close, but for others, it's, it's several months after the, after the cash transfer and we still see kind of higher levels of consumption. The reason that I am confident that there, in many contexts that you would find long run benefits is that there's a large literature out there from other settings that shows how drought in particular, but these kind of vulnerability shocks where there's a spike in food insecurity, how those that seem like transitory shocks can have permanent impacts, impose permanent deficits on individuals, especially those who were you know, pregnant lactating women or young children at that time, right? So there's, there's these critical ages where you can see long-term persistent deficits in cognitive development or in physical development that are, that are directly tied to exposure to one of these events at a critical development stage. So I think there's enough research around critical nonlinearities in human development and kind of persistent effects uh, over the long term that to me, I think it's pretty clear that they're, that if these cash transfers help a household bridge really difficult times and help them to not cut out as many meals as they otherwise would, those could have long-term benefits on human capital accumulation, for example. There is definitely a wealth of literature for sure on uh, in health economics and the long-term effects of SNAP programs when kids are like under the age of five, that like critical development stage. And I can see how in a huge shock, like for example, in a drought, that would he even have greater, greater effects. So what are future research questions that come about as a result of this study that are now kind of open for investigation? Like now that we know this about the World Food Program and the CDRs, what should we be looking at now that maybe an eager grad student might be interested in? There's a few things I think that follow pretty naturally. One is I, this kind of exercise of pushing the limits and pushing the frontiers I think is useful because it, it helps illuminate potential pitfalls to avoid. One of those pitfalls in this space is really about the kind of tension between impact evaluation, which as you described it with the regression discontinuity design, we're always pushing, pushing, pushing to get tighter and tighter counterfactuals, like better, more defensive, more, more defensible, more compelling counterfactuals uh, in order to do this, this kind of impact evaluation. But there's a real tension between that approach and an impact evaluation that would be based on predicted outcomes. Predicted outcomes require a lot more variation. So instead of being narrow around like this threshold and saying like the narrow so that you can argue that they're similar, you have to actually include distinctly unsimilar and very different kinds of households just so that the algorithm can, can get some purchase, some traction with prediction, right? So there's, there's that tension that I think is important to keep in mind. And that's where that again highlights the, the important difference between targeting and impact evaluation. So on the targeting side, I think, the, I think there's a lot of interesting things that could be done you know, to use CDRs for designing more cost-effective targeting uh, approaches in these kinds of programs. But the other thing I would say, I mean, 
in a sense, all is not lost, I think, on impact evaluation. In our case, where you're looking at trying to evaluate household level impacts, I think really hard to imagine. I mean, maybe there will be breakthroughs at some point, and maybe the data gets better, or maybe. But where I could imagine even now getting some real traction on impact evaluation is if you think of evaluating the impacts at a higher level. So instead of at the household level, if you're thinking of if you're thinking of like an infrastructure project or you're thinking about changes in local institutions or rules or you're trying to measure local economy spillovers, but you've zoomed out a little bit. And at that point, I think then impact evaluation using CDRs, for example, or passive data in some other totally makes sense. And in fact, not so much on the CDR side, but like on the on the night lights, the night lights that are detected by satellites or you know, a whole host of things that people are doing with remotely sensed data or these other passive data sets. At the coarser level, there's some really interesting work that's being done, but I think you to do that well, you have to be willing to zoom out kind of a higher level beyond the household for those kind of methods. My guest today has been Dr. Travis Libert. Travis, thanks for talking with me. My pleasure. This is Healthonomics. For more, go to healthonomics.co, where you can comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. I'm your host, Aina Katsikas. Thanks for listening. Mm